G'day, Magpie Army, and welcome to the second episode of our new podcast. I'm Adam McNichol, Head of Digital Content here at Collingwood, and I'm joined firstly by Stephen Riley, GM of Media and PR, and secondly, but not leastly, Marcus Wagner, our Performance and Strategy Manager. Now, boys, we've got a first issue we have to tackle off the top. We put it out to the Collingwood fans. What should this mighty podcast be called? I think we got about 3% of votes for Football Fountain, but the great Stephen Riley has come right over the top and said, no, that will be the name. It will be the Football Fountain. Wags, what do you make of this? It's just a dictatorship, Adam. Um, Riles, we, we, we thought last week that he'd, he'd yield his power for evil, and, and he has done just that. I, mean, I think he's a bit obsessed with fountains at the moment, but I think the only fountain Riles should be concentrating on is the fountain of youth. He's uh, <laughs> pulling this elderly statesman type approach to this podcast it's very disappointing but it just shows how powerful the man is not just at the club but in the industry i have right on my side that's all i'll say i think and and i think you've either misread that it was 333 percent voted for the football fountain or we had the three percent are clearly the 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 most important and influential three percent we are going to lose listeners because <laughs> of this riles people are going to open their twitter and go football fountain what is that? But alas, we'll continue. We'll it do our best. You've, you've, you've put a big, big weight on our shoulders now. And we just got to carry it now and see how we go. Have you heard the expression "fountain of ideas"? Only fountain of youth, Riley. I'll stick with that one. <laughs> right. Enough of this frivolity. <laughs> now, boys, I'm still uh, working off-site. Hence, I'm up in my salubrious studio in Ballarat. And uh, for all those of you listening, just a quick recap. Yes, thank you for listening to Football Fountain, the name of our new show. But, yes, I'm up in Ballarat. and uh, But you boys are in the heart of the action down there. So I think, firstly, the Magpie fans just want to know what's the feeling like in amongst the playing group as we get ready to take on the Tiggies? Well, they're very excited, Adam. Um, lucky we've got two games uh, this week. We've got our the boys who were unlucky and uh, to be selected for the AFL squad are playing... Richmond's um, seconds team tonight at the MCG, so they're very excited to just just have a game, a competitive game, and a run around on the MCG. But yeah, the players are definitely focused, honing in on on tomorrow night, and can't wait. A lot of excitement around the place. Do you think it's going to be um, uh, uh, very much like a, a typical round one encounter where you know players haven't played meaningfully for a long time, and there's a lot of intensity and energy, but that they're not quite as sharp as they will be, say, in, in by round four or five in a season? Oh, definitely. It's going to be a, a scrappy affair. And, and to add, add to that, it's, it's a night game. It's going to be freezing cold. And at, at the MCG, you get that layer of dew on the ground on, on those really cold nights, and the, and the Sharon does get very, very slippery. So no doubt it'll be a, a battle of wills. The ball will be on the ground a lot. Um, it's, it's going to be the team that can, I guess, impose their game style on the other for, for larger parts of the game that are going to succeed. But... Definitely, it's going to be um, it's going to be on for young and old. But yeah, I wouldn't expect it to be overly pretty early. It's a, there's a point of interest which, uh, in selection, rarely is there because most teams put out the teams that you expect. But no second ruckman for Richmond and pick Jack Higgins, as I understand it, and they've gone clearly with. Uh, well, not clearly. I'm assuming that they're thinking that as the game fatigue creeps into the game, extra run might count. Um, your thoughts? Oh, potentially, we're, whilst we're keeping an eye on their team, we're probably more worried about our own backyard at the moment and 
Um, I think all those things will, will come into play. I think it will be a ground-level game, but that doesn't detract from the aerial players at both ends because your capacity to bring the ball to ground is, is pivotal in, in how, how teams play these days. So the big boys in front of the ball still have their, have their um, impact on the game. It might not necessarily be in marks, but just being able to provide a contest and keeping the Richmond backs busy um, is, is really important. I think, believe you've got something to talk about uh, a bit later in our in the this fabulous football fountain <laughs> um, uh, about aerial power and game trends and and perhaps the the influence that um, the the marking players of the past would have been up front, but perhaps are in a different part of the ground now. Elite segue, Riles. You are just becoming the master of segues. Do you want? Do we want to jump into that, Adam? What do you think? Yeah, very good idea, gentlemen. I might just remind, I might just let the listeners know, in fact, that uh, once again, you are listening to Football Fountain, trademarked by Stephen Riley. And secondly, that uh, we've got two key topics for today. Every week, we're going to have a couple of topics from most of them from the football world, from inside the bubble. Now, boys, our two topics for today, game trends for 2020, and then quirky things to expect from the broadcast or things that you guys would like to see on the broadcast, giving we're missing crowds. But firstly, uh, take it away on what you expect to see on the field, game trends for 2020. Well, I think game trends is obviously from my from my old world in performance analysis is is something close to my heart. And we, we track game trends really hard here at Collingwood and and we, we trend things over a long period of time, not just not just the short term, but the long term to see where the game is going. And, and it's, I guess, before we delve into 2020, it's interesting to note where the game's kind of gone in the last 10 years because we do map it over that period of time. And an interesting one, as as Riles touched on earlier, is is the, um, I guess, the influence of defence in the game, which everyone knows, but it's it's how and, and the, the sheer scale of how defence has taken over the game. Because if you look back to 2012, Riles, um, the way we map it, the defensive trends is I'll just I'll just speak about the overall defensive rating. But the way we classified is there were no elite defensive teams in 2012. This is remembering over a 10-year period. There are two above-average teams, being Sydney and Fremantle. We both know they were they were very defensive-minded back in the day. Ten average defensive teams, two below-average teams, and four poor defensive teams. Um, skipping forward to the end of 2019, based on our metrics, there were three elite defensive teams, eight above-average defensive teams, six average defensive teams, and one below-average uh, defensive team. So a seismic shift there on purely... Uh, granted, it is just our rating system, but the sheer scale of how many quality defensive teams there are now. And like anything, something's got to give, and what's clearly given is, is the offensive side of things. So... Flipping it over to the other side of the scale, um, back in 2012, there were six elite offensive teams. I'll just reel off some names for you. So West Coast, Hawthorne, Richmond, St Kilda, Adelaide and Geelong. Uh, I think no surprises there when you think back to 2012. Three above average teams. Uh, there were five average teams, three below average teams and one poor team. So looking at the offensive side of things. Looking at 2019, now this is where it becomes really stark, is based on our metrics... There were no elite offensive teams in 2019 based on a 10-year sample. No above-average uh, offensive teams. 11 average teams. 
five below average teams and two poor teams when it came to offense. So it's almost like the game's become homogenized a bit around defend first and then and then and the offense has suffered as a, as a result. Delving a bit more into the why is as as we touched on earlier, the big key shift in the stats is is the aerial. Uh, in 2012, offensive aerial was dominant. Uh, a lot of teams were either elite or, or above average in offensive aerial, and defensive aerial was, I guess, on the other end of the spectrum. When you come to 2019, that has totally flipped over and defensive aerial has taken over the game. And you can think, I mean, Riles, you'll be able to kind of list a few players that you you know in this space that are, that are dominating in that in that defensive aerial space, but you're getting probably more of your quality players going back and, and setting up your offense from, from the back half, like guys like from us, Jeremy Howe, Darcy Moore, look at other teams like James Sicily, um, Jeremy McGovern, there's some quality backs mm. that, are, that are now dominating the game and I'm sure you well, can probably reel off a few more. In another age, they were probably forwards. And I think Howie's interesting to talk about us for a moment. He came to us as a, as a forward. The intention was to play him forward. He sort of speaks to that trend quite quickly. He, a guy of elite aerial ability, great intercept mark, athletic, um, you know, can cover the ground well for a guy of his size, plays tall, small. He ends up in the back half and becomes, you know, an outstanding player. Um, and I suppose it's a combination of a talent flow or a drain of talent from one end to the other. You know, sort of like the magnet pulling, drawing talent down. One, from forward, the forward half to the back half and then the strategy around that that sets the game up for them to prosper and, and rebound off halfback. Alex Rance is obviously a, a pioneer in yeah. that space as well. I think the other thing that sets up the defence, which is, is the defensive structures of the game, I think the way teams now set up and how structured they are and how, in, how they play in such great defensive shape allows these players to, I guess, be a bit more, I guess, offensive with their with their coming off their opponent and supporting in the air. It makes it really hard for forwards. So that's, that's a key, key change and it all let, feed, feeds in together. And you'll see other things like the amount of turnovers um, given up in 2012 was significantly lower than the turnovers given up in 2019. Um, and the, the ability for teams to go from end to end, so from, from their defensive 50 to their forward 50, has dropped off the planet in the last six or seven years. So back in 2012, you think of Sydney in the, in the 2012 grand final, how they just buffeted pressure and then just launched these, these searing attacks off half-back to, to mm. help them win the flag. They're, they're becoming less and less more, I guess, um, manageable in the, in the common game, which feeds really well into, into 2020 and what to expect because... The team that is bucking the trend on that on that back half ball movement is Richmond. They based their whole premiership last year on the ability to score from their back half. And what that does do is if if they congest, I guess, the opposition's forward line, when they do win the ball back, there's nothing but space in front of the, the mm. ball for them. So they've been able to really change the dynamic of the game to launch a lot of scores from from their back half. I mm. think in the in the first Round, I know it's a small sample size, they launched one-third of their scores from their defensive 50, which is unheard of. Mm. Um, but what it does do is by congesting the opposition's forward 50, it gives you so much space to play with on offence. You, you have to take the ball a bit further, but there's a lot of positive space there for them to work into. So I think teams have looked at Richmond from last year. I know Essendon have and will play a bit more bounce football from, from the back half. And I think that's one thing we'll definitely see. The other thing... Uh, we'll see is, is more handball, more forward handball, which I know you're, you've done some research on, Riles, and, and probably time to chime in here and, 
and hit us with your, your football fountain of knowledge? <laughs> well, research is uh, slightly overstating it, but um, I did come across a very interesting graph this week, which was a, a four-decade uh, analysis of uh, kick-to-handball ratios. And uh, back in the, 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 60, the decade of the 60s, it was about four kicks to one handball. And I think if everyone, everyone's heard about the 1970 and the... Most of us were You need to... Uh, football history is important. You've got to know where you come from <laughs> to know where you're going, Bags. But uh, uh, it's, it's uh, you know, the famous supposed Barassi halftime edict, you know, play on at all costs, handball, handball, handball. I think there was something like 30 handballs in the game, which sounds like a, a piddling amount now. But, but for the time, it was... It was um, uh, uh, a lot. Um, so four to one. By the time we make our way through the the seventies, it becomes three to one. So and and into the eighties, you're looking at, as I understand it, about two point five to one at the start of the eighties. By the end of the eighties, it's two to one. So we've actually halved the number of kicks to handballs over a 20, 20 year period, roughly. By the end of 219, it's 1.5 to 1. So um, I'm not quite sure where, where, where we can go from here because if we keep going, if this trend continues, it will stop being called football. <laughs> It'll be a handball. Well, I think the thing with handballing is you retain the ball a lot better when you're handballing. And speaking of points of difference on why teams win, win premierships, Western Bulldogs' point of difference in 2016 was there handball particularly under pressure they had elite hands and it was mm. amazing to watch but with with handball your your attention rate with your hands is much higher you turn the ball over less and if you're also taking ground which Richmond have um, have done so well recently is to take ground with their hands you're retaining possession but also taking ground off the opposition it's a it's a pretty powerful kind of way to play the game um, but also it does open you up for error if if you are off in that space or it is mm. a bit slippery or or things like that so um yeah, that's pretty sound research by you. Well, you can Ross. be tackled. That's the difference between right, part of the, the difference. You can be tackled, so it allows teams to to dispossess you or put the ball back into the into into a contest situation. Whereas with a kick and a mark, you can't. Um, I think Jared Healy uh, has been of late been talking about the, the minimum length of a kick being thirty meters for this reason. To um, um, so I, I, it'll be fascinating. I, I think um, there will be a, the wheel will turn. I'm sure that you know if you're going to play out of your back half and you're going to surge, you've got to have speed to get out. If you're slow getting out, well, you're going to get caught. So um, and Richmond have often had a lot of run, a lot a lot of guys who they they've been um, in some ways been. Um, uh, what do you say? They're, they're not being given a lot of credit for the roles that they play. But fundamentally, they're there to put speed and heat on, and and that allows them to bounce. Uh, I think you've got a bunch of people like you and I, Wags, trying to surge off a back flank. I, I don't think it's getting out of the back fifty. Yeah, I think you're underestimating, underestimating my speed, Riles. I don't think so. <laughs> no, I don't think so either. <laughs> but I think, I think that's what supporters like, and I think that's what's made Richmond such an attractive team to watch is this, is their speed of ball movement and the mm. fact that the ball's in in motion for. Pretty much their whole game. It's it's ballistic. It's exciting. 
Um, but you need some highly skilled players and some highly, yeah, you need speed in your team and you need quality to, mm. to finish it off as well. So I think like, there is a follow the leader trend in the AFL, like rightly or wrongly. I think there's coaches that move between teams, so they take the best parts of game styles between multiple teams. So I think that's the other thing we've seen is a homogenised game style across mm. the league. It's, it's a lot of teams play the same, they defend the same, and that's probably why the trends are all heading towards defence taking over. But once teams start breaking breaking that with sound offence, I'm sure that will catch on quickly as well. So that's where I think that the handball game will come into play. The forward football game will come in. Teams will be more willing to to take yards and surge mm. from from those contests. I think looking specifically at 2020 with um, the shortened game times, I think we saw it a bit in round one, but the ability to start the game well and, and space the opposition, you'll be able to protect your lead a lot better given the shorter, shorter quarters. And it probably puts more more panic uh, into the opposition because they know they've got less time to, I guess, grind back into the game. So jumping into the games early and, and making the most of op your opportunities early is going to be pivotal. Um, we've seen good players are on the ground longer. They're not playing more yeah. game time from a minutes perspective, but when you shorten the game, there that percentage goes through the roof. So you'll see your good players playing a, a hell of a lot more I think, game um, time. I'm oh, sorry. Well, Pendles has spoken about this, I believe, he, where he's... he's thinking about the, the new 16-minute quarter game as a three-quarter game. He's thinking about it in actual playing minutes and so he he's, says he's been conditioning himself, for instance, not to play 80 minutes anymore plus time on. He's conditioning himself to play about 50 minutes and time on and therefore intending, you know, and, and not having to worry about a second break in a quarter because you don't have to navigate the last 10 minutes, which aren't there anymore. So he's... It's shifted the way he's conditioning his body and been preparing, particularly in this shortened break back. Um, I imagine there'll be lots of players, particularly the thoughtful elite ones, who are going to be thinking about exactly how they're going to maximise their their effect yeah. in the time they've got. And I think the other part to that is, I think there's two sides to the argument around how ballistic the game's going to become. And some, I guess some of the analysts have, have predicted that'll create more congestion, more stoppages, more injuries. But... On the flip side, by having fresher players out in the ground, what breaks games open more than anything else is, is players' ability to spread from contest mm. and be able to use the ball well. And when they're fresher, they, their skills are better, uh, they use it better, they run better. So I, I actually think the shorter games will increase the scoring capacity, and we saw that a bit in round one. Um, and also just, just free congestion, because I think you'll see more players spreading harder. There'll be, they'll be shorter stints on the ground because we've got more rotations relative to time now so shorter stints on the ground so there'll be a lot of pace and energy in the game the whole time and I think that'll lead to a better spectacle and um, and more scoring but mm. at the same time the the counter argument to that is by by having fresher players on the ground they they get to more contests which creates more congestion mm. so it'll be interesting to see which way it, it falls but I'm I'm pretty positive that it'll it'll the game will look a lot better with the shortened game what do you think what impact do you think it'll have on on endurance players We've we've got some guys who are just natural runners here. Um, all clubs do guys who can run Olympic standard four hundreds and two kers and all those sorts. The guys who can just churn through a particular and then start to really push forward and get come into a game in the last in the red time. Um, do you think it will neutralise that advantage? Oh, they're still going to be pivotal. It, it comes down to how you structure up your team. But say you're looking at your wing roles, they're, they're still going to have to get up and down the ground. Um, in that kind of that surge running capacity mm. as much as they ever have. And, 
and no wingman ever play 100% game time, so they'll they'll continue to play similar minutes. But that surge running up and back is going to be pivotal, and that they might do 15, 20 minute stints. So that's where endurance does kick in, and mm. by them doing that, it allows your power and ballistic players to have those short bursts, come off and go again. So you need players in your side that buffer um, the other players in your side to allow them to, to flourish with their strengths. So I think there's still definite scope for your endurance players, particularly in also those wing high forward roles where, where you do have to get up and back regularly throughout the quarter. The other one I reckon we'll see, which we saw in round one, is momentum swings. I know we said starting well is going to be important, but I think uh, it's going to be, given, the, as I said, with the ballistic nature of the game, there's going to be times when teams will put two or three goals on really quickly. So the capacity for teams to hold up when, when the momentum is swinging without crowd involvement, without, I guess, that those intangibles that playing in front of a big audience brings, you're going to have to be really mindful of your, your environment to make sure you're controlling those momentum swings. So I, I know there was lots of, lots of batches of three and four goals in a row for, for multiple teams in round one. It'll be interesting to see if that continues as well, Riles. I think there's a thought that without crowds and without the, the adrenaline rush that comes with the roar that follows a great piece of play, passage of play or a goal, without that, that momentum might be harder to build because you know, there's not that emotional high to work with. You don't have 50, 60, 70,000 people sort of rallying behind you. And um, I, I take your point. If, if a team does get it on a run and, you've got, and the, it's a shorter quarter, you, you're going to sense or feel as le- at least that you've got you've to stem it quickly, hit back quickly, which can create panic, can force your hand prematurely. Um, but I'll be fascinated to see whether we do get a, say, a six or seven goal run from a team when there's silence greeting every, every goal. Yeah, I think it'll be, yeah, I think it's a good point. I think it'll be more short, shorter bursts of momentum rather mm. than a sustained six or seven goal run. It'll, that's why, looking at, again, looking at round one, it was, yeah, three and four goal bursts quickly, not that sustained quarter of dominance mm. because, yeah, once the crowds are rumbling, it's, it's hard to stop. It's, uh, it's going to be a, a strange world again to get used to. Mm. Well, here's a thought. I, I know Gil has said that we're not going to have 16-minute quarters next year or 16 and a half. But if we were to persist with 16 and a half minute quarters, would 60 goals be the new 100? I think it already is, be playing, isn't it? Well, yeah, well, that's true, it is. It is, but, but would, would 60, oh, sorry, 40 be the new 60? Yeah. Um, because if you're getting 20% less game time each week and it's harder to score anyway... You might win the Coleman with 50 yeah. in a game, in a, in a season that's played with only 16 and a half minute quarters. Yeah. And I think that's some of the, the knocks on any change to the game is you throw all your history out the window, Riles. I know that's a one yep. close to your heart because you've got a lot of history <laughs> being the age you are. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's like playing cricket on the MCG, as they say. If you're a shield player at the MCG, no, no shortened boundaries, no postage stamp sized grounds, your batting average suffered by 10. You, you average Slow 40 out, at the MCG, but you might have you might have averaged 50 at Bell Reef. Yeah. So. No, I think it's uh, it's a good point. There's a it's, bit of history for you, Marcus. Yeah, but there you go. But I think I think as I said earlier, the 16 minutes should lead to greater scoring rates. So it'll be very interesting to see the scoring rate. Like you can't look at the overall score line because obviously the reduced game time, but the actual scoring rate points per minute mm. will be very interesting to watch this year because I've I've got a feeling it will go up. I think someone will open the throttle. Been more interesting to see if we did go to 26 games. 
and you might uh, and scoring went up, then you might get someone kicking 150 again. Happy days, but we won't open that can of worms right now. What we'll move on to is the broadcast situation. So no crowds, broadcasters get their footy back in prime time. Boys, what do you think we're going to see? Rolls, you deal a lot with the broadcasters in your job. You go mm. first. What do you think we'll see uh, as footy comes back onto our TV screens? Uh, I think they've flagged the, the, the innovations they're looking at. They're going to introduce crowd noise, which we've got a taste of through the NRL. Worked particularly well, I thought, with the uh, in the NRL matches that I saw. Um, with the crowd noise underneath it, it... it, it you didn't miss, you didn't feel like you were watching a game played in a vacuum. Um, I know that the NRL is a more TV-friendly spectacle. Um, but Seven have been toying with that. Um, as I understand, they've been trialling it for six or seven weeks to try and adapt it to the AFL game. So, you know, less of a, a, um, a, of a hum underneath but more of a surge with the with passages of play and, and the excitement built around play. Um, um, I think they're going to uh, integrate, in their co- integrate into their coverage um, uh, fans. So they'll be Zooming uh, fans and, and, and sort of going to the atmosphere of the lounge room, uh, trying to tap into that and talk with fans, get them to describe the passage of play, um, convey their excitement, um, even at a distance. Um, I, I, beyond that, I'm not sure that, um, you know, whether there's a particular camera angle that they might exploit or play around with to, so you don't get that, that barren 40,000 seat, you know, um, grandstand or stand captured in the, in the it's, it's not the backdrop um, because it, it does look, it looks stark, it looks, uh, it, it def- I think it, 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 it det- actually detracts from what you're watching. Mm. You, 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 you can't, it's unmistakable that there's no one there. I think the rugby game, you didn't, you didn't quite see that, which again, I know they're, they're different to us, but if they can bring the field of vision down um, so you've got less of the empty grandstand, um, we'll see. Virtual crowds I don't think is going to happen. Uh, too dangerous a concept, I think. Yeah. I think I'm, I'm battling with the no crowds. I'm, I'm lucky enough to sit on the ground level for our games and the crowd is just... It makes the game. I think of all the big moments in sport, and I know we're, we're dealing with a very unique situation here, but I, I go even back as far back as 2011 prelim final when that last quarter the goals are going back and forward. Buddy kicks a goal from the, the boundary line on Taz and you can feel, you can see through the camera, the camera shake. Mm-hmm. I love a camera shake in a broadcast. That's when the crowd's just erupting and the camera the cameraman gets a bit excited, gets the shakes on. But every key moment in the game has the crowd, so even even looking at kind of Stokes when he hit the winning runs at Edgebaston, um, he hits it, the arms go in the air, and you see a pack stand behind him that rises one, and that that's the stuff that gives you chills, and mm. we're just not going to be able to replicate that. So it's great that we've got footy back, but I think like whatever the broadcasters do is is going to pale into insignificance compared to having having a full crowd, which is is the environment we're in at the moment. Well, I, and I would like to think that what we've learnt from the, the, the age of COVID is that, and, and without footy and, or, or football played without crowds, is that the, the absolute priorities in my mind should be the players. We need the players looked after. It's a players game 
they need to be allowed to be their best and in turn that creates a better spectacle in my view or will help to create a better spectacle um, and fans. Without either of them, we're nothing. And and, and I suppose that I, I, uh, my hope is that whatever changes are wrought on the game or uh, in brackets or in, sorry, in quotation marks, innovations are introduced, um, that the the spec the fan cannot be forgotten that that it has to be compelling to watch at the game which is a different experience to that at home and I get why we want to innovate um, for the broadcast but let's not move into the game itself to the extent that we lose the spectacle and the fans have got to turn up they've got to believe that what they're getting there is outstanding sporting theatre and um, uh, so I would. I, I, it just seems to me it's so obvious it's merged from this period that without either of those things, um, great athletes playing the game or fans, we, we might as well shut the doors. On innovation, Riles, what are your thoughts on mic'd up players? I know you love this topic. Well, um, I'm yet to hear a player say anything interesting on the field while they're playing. With that, one exception. Luke Luke Hodge. Hodge. Yes. Yeah, which is used routinely to defend this concept. Um, One in a hundred's not bad, Ross. Well, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, Luke in the in the sunset years of his career, um, and it was it was interesting. I'll, I'll grant you that it was interesting, but to, I think it's a real danger for the game, um, for the fans, and that's um, let's talk about Collingwood people for a moment. If they thought for a moment that one of our players was not invested in the game entirely, completely, utterly, that if they thought that um, a player had a, a part, even a skerrick of his thinking, on talking to a broadcast booth, then I think they start to think of the game as being something less than true, that it becomes closer to reality television instead of an authentic sporting contest. They have to. Our fans have to believe that every Collingwood player walks over that line, is will do anything he, he can to win, and 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 that's their job. It's not to be trying to get a kick and talking to commentators while they're playing. I think the two they're incompatible, and I get why people are interested in trialing it. I'm not not opposed to innovation, but I want to protect the integrity of the contest. But I don't think it's authentic anyway. They, they know it, they're mic'd up. That's why what I did enjoy in round one was the authentic sounds of the game because there were no crowd. You could hear everything that was happening on the ground, good and bad. I'm sure the broadcasters had some hairy moments <laughs> there in round one. But that's what I particularly like about um, kind of NFL coverage is, is the, being able to hear what's on the ground without, the, I guess, the infrastructure on the player and they're just being themselves. Mm. And obviously... It becomes harder to manage from a broadcast perspective if it's if it's that raw. But I loved hearing the hits, and that's again I I work on ground level at at AFL games, and some of the hits you hear are just like mm. they they kind of make you tingle because they're just brutal, and you forget mm. how brutal the sport is um, when you see players colliding, even even simple things when a player laces out a player in front of the ball, just the, the sound of the footy on on the boot. Mm. Is, a good kick sounds different to a poor kick. Um, you can hear players talking to each other, the communication around stoppage, the excitement in their voices when they kick a goal. They're the things that, that make the game, not wired up 
arbitrary conversation just because they feel like they should be talking. It's like, Johnny, here, go there. And it's yeah. just like, what is that? I mean, yeah. it's, it's just nothing. The, the technology exists, as I understand it. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but the NFL use directional mics, right? So they, they just point them from a distance of 50 or 100 metres at a passage of play and capture what is being said. Now, I understand they're expensive and that may be a reason why they haven't been um, trialled here extensively, if at all. But the technology exists. You don't have to intrude on the game or, 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 or you know, just sort of cloud a player's thinking by him worrying about what he's going to say or if, if he's not even concerned with that. Just let him play. Um, I, I, and I think that the difference between watching on television and being live is just what you captured, the, the sounds, the hits and things. And, and it is brutal out there. And if we can capture that without intruding on the game without changing it, without compromising what players are doing. They're not entertainers, in my view. That, that's a byproduct of what they do. Uh, and as and if I'm re repeating myself here, uh, my apologies, but in the words of the great Nick Hornby, who wrote Fever Pitch, fanatical Arsenal man, he said he never went to Highbury to be entertained. He went to belong. Because, uh, and there's a, a profound difference in that. So... Um, entertainment's one thing. That should be a byproduct of what the players do brilliantly. And if we don't like it at times, well, that's the game. There isn't a sport in the world that doesn't look ugly at times. There are low-scoring basketball games, dead basketball games that are blowouts. There are boring football, you know, so uh, soccer matches. Cricket can be tedious, but at its best, it's exhilarating. We've got to live with the, the good and the bad of all sports, in my view. That was powerful stuff by Steve Riley. That's just, that's just back behind the wheel again. You're just <laughs> writing again, aren't you? But it's, it's, it's a spot on point. I think the, the lasting legacy of, of this won't be, from the broadcasting, won't be anything other than the, the sounds of the game out there. I think mm. viewers will become used to it and, and warm to it. Um, but at the end of the day, it's, the broadcast is nothing without the crowd. So they're, they're trying their best to make it work. But I think until we get crowds back in big numbers, it's going to be a compromised product. And I know the players will do their best. I know they... Yeah. They'll generate some excitement from their actions, um, celebrating goals. They can't even do that, so or do it how they would want to do it. So all these little things are going to have an impact on on the viewing quality. But I think I go back to any any live sport, sport that's got meaning, like friendlies. We have the big big soccer clubs come out and play at the MCG in a friendly. It just means nothing. You got to have sport that where there's a lot on the line. Um, with big crowds who are, who are riding every bit of it, mm. that's what generates the beauty of, of sport. And I think without the crowd or meaning in the game, you've got nothing. So we've mm. got meaning in the game, absolutely. And that's probably got to take on a, a greater relevance now without the crowd. And then when we get the crowd back, I think everyone, every AFL supporter across the, the land will never take going to the footy for granted ever again. Mm. And we certainly won't take for granted having crowds cheer us on. So... It's hopefully we come through this with a better product and a and a better experience, but one way, shape, or form, it's going to be a tricky year this year. Mm. What, what are the highlights of, of round one? In, in our game in round one against the Western Bulldogs was the celebrations of the Brown family. Yeah, you know, tie to Cal Cal goals, and they're not allowed to actually do a whole lot, but to see the, their their grandmother jumping up and down and and Kerry and. And the, well, Gav wasn't doing too much. I think he was uh, he very was, measured. He was named rowdy for a reason. <laughs> um, the, but them celebrating like that, it, it gave you, you know, you, it was a joyous moment that you couldn't help but feel good about. Yeah. And that was just a, a snippet of what 
emotion does to yep, the, you know, right. provides to a contest. I just still love that Cal reckons he was going to give it, trying to give it back to Tyler. It's absolute likes. He was Lie. looking at the goals only and beeline straight at the goals, but <laughs> he can keep telling himself. Tyler's not. Tyler's still filthy at him. So hopefully they can bind again on uh, Thursday night. Yes, yes. They put should zoom into the uh, the Brown household. I think just in case we get another one, get Grandma doing it again. I was pretty well dominated the first one, but he did get the name of the show up. But that's all right. Any last thoughts, Wags, as we head into this game against the Tigs? Uh, as I said, just excited to get footy back. Hopefully, hopefully we get a win and we can share it as best we can with with our staff and supporters. Um, but now we're into the into the groove now, so the season will will go pretty quickly from here. So very excited, but. Can't wait to see Darcy Cameron go about it in his first game for the Pies. He's had a super period here and competitive beast in front of the ball. We talk about offensive aerial early in the in the show, so hopefully he can bring that to the table and and give us uh, give us something up front. Very good. And Ross, any last words of wisdom from you? Any last quotes from Nick Hornby? Uh, no, well, I'll, I'll, I'll go back in time though and say that this uh, this episode I was just playing rope a dope. I was just uh, letting Wags punch himself out, and I'm ready to strike back next week. Has he got any quotes, any, any quotes from Victor Trumpet over us? <laughs> well, he's a friend of mine, actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, too cruel, too cruel. <laughs> Righto, well, that's it for episode two of, of Football Fountain. Enjoy the footy. So good to have it back. We'll be back with another episode next week.